until then, also the company I worked with at the, at the time, Bosch, but also all the other companies, were still of the opinion autonomous driving is going to be 20 years out. And it has always been 20 years. Uh, 20 years seems to be that time constant which humans use to describe something that is somewhere in the far future. And in order to put a date on it, they say it's 20 years. It's been 20 years for the last 50 years. Hello, and welcome to the Autonicast. I'm Kirsten Korosak, transportation editor at TechCrunch. And I'm Ed Niedermeyer. I'm the author of Ludicrous, the Unvarnished Story of Tesla Motors. And I'm Alex Roy, the founder of the Human Driving Association, um, and formerly the director of special operations at Argo AI. I've got to have a new intro for myself. But today, we're going to skip that, because we have a guest that I've known for many years, that I've wanted to have on for the longest time, and I'm so thrilled to have him. We have, well, I would call him one of the godfathers of autonomous driving development. Maybe the odd... We'll get to that. Jan Becker, the founder and CEO of Apex AI. Welcome to the Autonicast. Thanks, Alex, and thanks, Kirsten and uh, Ed, for having me. Jan, would you give us a little bit of your background before we talk about Apex? Because almost every company that is developing autonomous driving today will have a large number of people who will say they took your class and refer back to you over and over. And yet, for all of the, the long shadow you cast, your name is not in the media as much as some other people who claim credit, perhaps, for things they didn't do. Jan, tell us your story. Sure. Um, I've actually counted uh, during CS. Uh, it's been a little over 20 years that I've been working on autonomous driving, driver assistance, and a software for vehicles. So it started in uh, 97. I had finished college. Um, I, I grew up in Germany. I was born in Germany, grew up in Germany and in the US. Went to both high school and college, both in Germany and in the US, and then was looking for a PhD position worldwide. And one came up um, in Braunschweig, which is near Wolfsburg, where the Volkswagen headquarters is, um, to work on autonomous driving and specifically to automate Volkswagen's endurance testing. So Volkswagen, as, as probably most automakers, run a test track. Um, in the Volkswagen case, they run cars uh, 24-7 for about a month, uh, roughly driving uh, 10,000 miles on this specially designed test track. And that then um, stresses the, the vehicles about 14 times uh, the stress. So they go through the mechanical lifetime of a vehicle in about a month. Super stressful for the cars, equally stressful for the test drivers. So the idea was to automate it, um, which we then did. The first challenge we had to overcome was to actually interface with the vehicle. So today you have uh, actuators on the steering wheel, actuators uh, for automated parking, for instance, actuators uh, and connections to the powertrain to accelerate uh, with the, the electrical or the conventional uh, uh, engine and then you can since the uh, 90s you can also just uh, break the vehicle um, through an electrical interface to the to the esp system all of that didn't exist 20 years ago so we first had to build an almost humanoid robot uh, to sit on the driver's seat with three legs for the three pedals an arm for the gear shifter so we were all also driving manual transmission vehicles and another arm uh, to connect to the steering wheel in the end, um, that robot alone was more expensive than what Volkswagen wanted to spend for the whole system. So we built up a couple of prototypes. They actually worked beautifully. So we were driving um, uh, completely driverless in the late 90s. 
worked beautifully, but ended up being more expensive uh, than what the company wanted to spend to put it into testing production. So I, that's how I had a quick question. Yeah. yeah, I had a quick question. Um, so in the 90s, when you were able to um, actually uh, successfully complete some autonomous driving, where this was on a closed track, um, correct? And then what sort of sensor suite were you using at that time to be able to achieve that? Yeah, uh, excellent question. So everything was pre-production and all the sensors uh, already existed back then we are using today. So we were using industrial grade LIDARs company at the time was called SIC. Um, we were also using pre-production radar. So radar actually didn't make it into production vehicles until about two years later. So the first adaptive cruise control systems hit the market around 99. So we started the project in 97. Uh, and we also use cameras uh, for computer vision. So to detect the lane markings and, um, and, and cars on the road. In addition, we used GPS, so we ended up building uh, at the university our own RTK GPS system to do precision localization on the test track. We mapped the test track, um, and we were driving in mixed operation mode, meaning both autonomous vehicles and many driven vehicles uh, were driving together. So pretty much all the sensors we are using still today. Um I'm sorry, just really quick. I, I, the use case of automating reliability testing is fascinating. I swear I've seen a video. I was just looking for it. I can't find it, but I, I swear this is something that's sort of, this is a use case that where automation has, has played some role for a long time, isn't it? Like this is, tell us a little bit about that background because it's, it's fascinating. Yeah, so I've uh, uh, I, I've seen test tracks that use uh, a, man, a wire in the ground, a wire bird in the ground, which is also commonly used in factory automation, where you have a wire um, in the ground and then you have a magnetic sensor uh, that can measure the deviation of the sensor laterally uh, to the wire, and then you can correct for any offset, meaning you can steer the vehicle back to the center. That has a lot of limitations. Uh, you need infrastructure. Um, you cannot go very fast because uh, the range of those sensors is somewhere around a foot to, to two feet to the left and to the right, meaning if you go go too fast and then you uh, you hit a curve and then the sensor has already has an offset, which is more than what the sensor can actually detect, then you cannot react to it. So there are a lot of limitations. Um, uh, we ended up deciding uh, to take a completely infrastructure-less approach with respect to physical infrastructure and to make the system as generic as possible. That's how we ended up uh, with the same sensor suite that you know all the companies use today. What was the initial, was this just completely experimental? I mean, obviously, I'm assuming most automakers, if they're going down this road, they hope to have some commercial product. But how sort of experimental moonshot was this at the time? I mean, this is really early days. A lot of people think of the beginning of quote unquote self-driving cars. We always point to DARPA, but this is actually predating that. Um, What was the end goal for Volkswagen at the time? So the end goal was actually to automate endurance testing on the test track. So the intention was to was to fully automate that, or let's say partially automate, so still run in in mixed operations, humans, drivers, that part of the test track. 
um, again, while we, we did achieve the technical goal, we did not meet the commercial target. So it ended up not going into production as intended. Uh, but nevertheless, it was a, a, an awesome learning experience, not just for me, I think also for all the companies uh, involved. So besides Volkswagen, Bosch was involved. Uh, the LIDAR company, Ebio, originated out of that project, uh, at least partially. Uh, a lot of PhD students worked on it. So I personally learned a lot. I couldn't have imagined a better start into... Um, into the topic and you know it was so exciting that i uh, stayed with the topic i've now been working on now it's 2023 i've been working on vehicle automation for over 25 years so before we move on to apex ai what what happened to that robot which was sitting in the driver's seat like what was what happened to the ip around that um, so the, the robot sitting in the driver's seat, that was actually not developed from scratch. It was based on a robot that is used for, has been used before, had been used before for emission uh, test stands. So where you run predefined driving cycles on emission test stands, uh, where you need, um, a defined, actually, you know, uh, acceleration and braking cycles. Um, I believe the robot was, uh, still used after the projects, uh, to, um, to do certain driving tests, which are hard to repeat. So, for instance, very precise evasive maneuvers or, you know, drive, for instance, driving in a circle for a very, very long time to detect certain software bugs around, for instance, an overflow of the gyros or the Yorid sensor that, that is also used for electronic stability uh, control in vehicles. There was a guy at CES like a year or two ago uh, who had literally a bipedal robot that would he would stick in the in the car that was supposed to make any car mm -hmm. self driving and uh do you have did you see that do you have an opinion on that no i have I had not seen that ours as i said actually had three legs because we were also driving manual transmission which also worked beautifully <laughs> and <Wow>. um, <laughs> the the robot was actually shifting faster than any human i've ever seen uh, shifting shifting gears um so that that was awesome um but, you know, today we don't need that anymore. We can just uh, electronically interface with gas steering, um, the brake. Um, so it's, it has become obsolete. I, I have one question. Just there's not a lot of people who were in driving automation, you know, to the extent that you were before DARPA. I'm, I'm really curious how just from your perspective working in the space, how did DARPA change? Like, again, you know, as as journalists and whatever, that's always where you go back to start the story is the DARPA channel. I think it especially in the US. And I know actually a lot of automated driving was, was happening in Europe before then. Um, mm -hmm. How did that just, what, what was that like to, to be working in this space, to have something like the DARPA challenge happen? You know, obviously, you know, LIDAR got pushed for, a lot of things happened there, but mm -hmm. I, I'm just, what did that look like? What, did, what was that experience like? So be before the project I started my career, and there was actually another even larger project in Europe called Promesois which happened in late 80s, early 90s. And that is really the, the godfather project of vehicle automation. Um, radar was developed in that project, automotive radar. Um, the first driver assistance systems were at least conceptualized there. Um, and that took place uh, late 80s uh, to 94. And in 94, there was a final demonstration in Paris where in on a public road, um, the first adaptive cruise control concepts 
were actually shown and uh, people were driving in, in public. I still have some videos dating back to that time as well. Not sure if you can find them on YouTube, where, for instance, the University of the Armed Forces in Germany in the late 80s equipped a huge van with, uh, at the time, the computing architecture were transputers, which is remotely uh, comparable to parallel computing we have today. Uh, so they, they already work with cameras and try to paralyze uh, computer vision tasks, uh, for instance, on that computing architecture. And that then, a lot of public funding went into that project. Um, then we had the project I worked in. Uh, in parallel, Carnegie Mellon at the time had a lab called Nuff Lab. They built up a number of vehicles, uh, one um, driving across the U.S. called No Hands Across America, where they automated um, uh, steering. So they were at least aiming to drive completely without hands on the steering wheel. Um, the challenge at the time was really compute. Uh, you, uh, when, when we ran the project in the late 90s, um, we used Pentium 1x86 computers and we, we had racks of, I think, seven or eight computers in, in the vehicle. And then obviously taking a lot of power. We were super happy when we got an upgrade from 100 to 133 megahertz. So we could do much more. Um, to that feels ancient compared to today where I have uh, a multiple of the computing power in my smartphone. Yeah. Uh, there's, kind of a legend around how self-driving cars or autonomous vehicle technology was um, made a giant leap forward during DARPA because of the concept of spinning LIDAR, um, which, you know, later became, which was Dave Hall's invention or with mm -hmm. his brother. And then it was, um, the, LIDAR, of course, was not an invention, but um, that design. What's your mm -hmm. view of that? I mean, because there's obviously this like decades long history that predated that. Was it really when looking back and um, allowed for a major step change? Um, I know compute was incredibly important as um, computing power increased, but what about um, that specific LIDAR design? Um, I, I, yes, I, I think three, there were three relevant outcomes of the DARPA urban challenge. One was um, industry attention. So if you look at the the two cars that won the Grand Challenge in 2005, which was Stanford, and uh, the Carnegie Mellon car that won the Urban Challenge 2007, um, there was a lot of industry attention. Google and um, QNX and a lot of Intel and a lot of companies sponsored uh, those two teams with a significant amount, amount of money. So all of a sudden, there was industry attention. Um then LIDAR came out of the, uh, the the LIDAR industry we have today, which is now a multi-billion dollar industry, uh, came out really through coincidence. Um, uh, so Dave and Bruce were experimenting with computer vision in the early grand challenges. And I still remember seeing them drive over their, their the front yard of the, of Velodyne, uh, back then the speaker company, um, and then they thought, hey, they can do perception much better with LIDAR. And then they started to uh, build a LIDAR. I still remember having one of the early prototypes at Stanford, which looked more like a disco ball um, than the LIDAR we have today. Uh, so it was this huge spinning device with um, visible mirrors, uh, which we mounted on the Turek at the time. Um, and then they integrated it into a much more compact design. And then that was so promising 
in terms of what uh, what we could ultimately get out of perception that DARPA decided to give them a grant to convince them to not build autonomous vehicles anymore and continue to drive over the plants in their front yard, but instead really focused on developing LiDAR. And then I believe not all, but most of the teams in the uh, 2007 final race actually used the Velodyne LiDAR. So that is, and, and now, you know, that started a, a billion dollar industry and now we have a lot of large companies uh, developing and, and producing LiDAR with um, a resolution and they brought the cost down, which is always the case. They brought the cost down a couple of orders of magnitude. Uh, and then lastly, uh, Waymo, what is now Waymo, so the Google project, uh, which is then morphed into Waymo, came out of the Dopper Challenge. So Sebastian started that at Google in, in 2008 in secret, uh, and then it became a public project in, uh, I believe, fall 2010. And that then really, uh, in my opinion, started the industry, drove the industry forward. Until then, also the company I worked with at the, at the time, Bosch, but also all the other companies, we're still of the opinion autonomous driving is going to be 20 years out. And it has always been 20 years. Uh, 20 years seems to be that time constant, which humans use to describe something that is somewhere in the far future. And in order to put a date on it, they say it's 20 years. It's been 20 years for the last 50 years. All of a sudden, Google thought, hey, we can do that sooner than in, than in 20 years. And they put their team together. Um, and they really moved the limits of what c could be done on public roads back then. And that all of a sudden then uh, created industry attention. And why is an internet company, why is a search uh, engine company all of a sudden uh, working in an automotive space where the automotive company thought that is their domain? Um, they, they were, they're doing it and Google shouldn't really be doing it. The timelines have always been interesting to me because, as you said, it's always, well, it hasn't always, but for many years, it was the 20-year, 20-year. And then right around like the peak hype cycle, I think it was like 2017, 2018, it was like, you know, suddenly that window shortened to, you know, less than a handful of years. Um, and then sometime, I guess it was probably maybe last year, two years ago, I don't know, Ed, if you would or Alex, if you would agree to this, then all of a sudden we started seeing it lengthen again. Um, maybe not by up to two decades, but you know, suddenly it wasn't two years away or three years away. It was like five to 10 years away. Um, Ed, what do you think? Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, as early as 2018, some of this started setting in. Uh, and Jan, I'm, I mean, I'm curious, right? Okay. So here you are, right? You, you've been you know, doing automated driving before it was cool. Um, you know, all of a sudden you have DARPA come in, you have this, this, bubble really i think it can already say that that to some extent this was clearly a bubble start to inflate why doesn't everyone know your name why, why were you not the guy who was you know well, i know his name yeah, I, everybody the, everybody i know says got to talk to jan becker okay the, but this is what this is what i'm getting to though right right you were clearly in a position where you you know i mean I'm assuming if you wanted to have your own company that was promising you would have automated driving in five years and, you know, that you would, you know, maybe get some car companies as partners and stuff. Why, why were, why, I'm curious, like, like, did, did you feel like that there was a lot of overhype from the very beginning and you were sort of nervous about this, this last phase we're in or how, talk about how, how you've navigated the last, let's call it little under 10 years. Cause I, I think there's a story there or some insight at least. Sure. Um, so I'm, 
I, I, I never overpromise and underdeliver. To me, it was always clear that um, we're, we're not going to have a million robot robot cars in five years uh, driving around when it was you know 2015, and we had a, had a lot of that hype. What became clear to me, though, um, really after at the time 20 years of my career, was that um, there's a lot of fundamental work that is still missing in the field. The first 10 years of my career, I basically every time we started a new project, we built, rebuilt everything from scratch, base software, uh, software tools, uh, software that does recording and playback, uh, what we would call a framework today. Then around 2009, um, I, I got engaged with uh, on the side with a company called Villagrash. Villagrash, uh, for those uh, you don't know, a typical Silicon Valley story, Scott Hassan, who was one of the first Google employees, wanted to make an investment in robotics and uh, robotics being autonomous systems in the wider sense. And he founded Villagrash on Villa Road in Menlo Park. Hence Willow and, and Garage because our companies here are presumably founded in a garage. So he called the company Willow Garage uh, as a nonprofit to um, develop fundamental base software uh, for robotics and in such a way that it would bring the whole industry forward. So they took a, two projects out of Stanford. One was the personal robot project and they built the PR2 robot out of it, which is essentially a robotic platform where they then Built 20 and gave 11 away for free, uh, for free under the condition that everything the recipients would develop in terms of software on top had to go back into the second project, which became ROS, the robot operating system, which is a project uh, entirely in open source under, uh, back at the time, a BSD3 course license. Today it's the Apache 2 license, which essentially means you can do everything you want with it, including commercialization into products. Then, um, I was at, at Bosch at the time. We started to take ROS uh, and also put the, the Stanford stack, which uh, we used um, during the DARPA Urban Challenge, which then uh, was open sourced, way more used to get started. Zooks used to get started. We at Bosch used to get started. And then we put uh, ROS uh, under that stack. So the whole stack moved from a somewhat outdated Carnegie Mellon framework um, to ROS as a more modern framework. Then we used... Um, uh, Ross in many, many robotics projects, but also for autonomous driving, but then also quickly learned what the deficiencies of Ross are. It's an open source project, which is great, but it also means there's a community behind it, which is rather slow moving. Uh, then it's uh, in terms of software, not real time, meaning it doesn't execute necessarily as fast as you need it. And uh, more importantly, not with the guarantees uh, that you need for a commercial product. Um, it wasn't reliable enough, and ultimately it wasn't certified for for automotive use. Then um, that really led to to the idea to start Apex AI. Then a couple of years down the road, uh, which was in 2017, after um, having seen how how much ROS as an open source framework and as a base software, most importantly, can accelerate prototyping. So before that, basically every project I worked on took a couple of years. And half of that was spent on redeveloping stuff we had already developed for uh, uh, another purpose before. Then um, with Ross, prototyping of robotic ideas, 
um, was all of a sudden accelerated to days instead of weeks and years. So we built within five days as one of the first projects, a robot that could pick up mail from a stack, so letters from a stack, could sort them and then deliver them in the office. Five days before that was ta would have taken us two years. Uh, we, we built robots that could um, fold T-shirts that was also a couple of weeks project and so on and so on. So all of a sudden prototyping was accelerated tremendously, but then we still got stuck. We got st stuck later at the commercialization step where, and that's um, still the case pretty much in the automotive industry where you prototype software um, and then you give it to another department and then they redevelop it pretty much from scratch. Uh, for the embedded system, so meaning a microcontroller or microprocessor-based platform, which is then automotive certified. Um, so many of the early ideas I prototyped uh, after my PhD project was, for instance, the traffic jam assist, which was uh, essentially level two, what Tesla now uh, calls, calls autopilot, in 2005. Um, that took pretty much 10 years from prototype to product because it was redeveloped three times. First, uh, first redevelopment happened uh, in order to put it in the vehicle after we prototyped it um, with, uh, with a simple prototyping system. And then it was redeveloped a third time on the embedded system, meaning in that case uh, on the radar hardware, on the microcontroller in the radar. And then you add three times, uh, three years ends up being nine, 10, 11 years for what is really a simple functionality compared to what we are developing today. So that then sparked the idea of, um, why don't we develop, um, a, a base software that is really robust enough, right? Reliable enough and ultimately certified so that the, all of these uh, redevelopment steps are eliminated. Uh, and you can directly prototype in ROS and then launch the product in a vehicle. And that idea then sparked the foundation of Apex AI, uh, which we started in 2017, summer 2017, so a little over five years ago. Uh, and then in the first two years, we ultimately rewrote ROS into an automotive production-based software. Just to summarize for non-technical folks, it sounds like you had to sort of invent or reinvent picks and shovels and then sell picks and shovels. And that's kind of where, where you've been. Correct. And uh, I, I always like to compare it with a gold rush where millions of gold diggers were rushing for gold, but who became rich? The ones that built the railroad and the ones that sold the shovels. And yeah. the jeans. And even Le 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 Levi's yeah. jeans. Yeah. <laughs> classic Levi's example. Yep. Exactly. I've always looked at the picks and shovels piece as potentially, at least in the near term, the best, you know, business case. You you mentioned earlier that you've always kind of um your sort of philosophy is to um not overpromise and not um under deliver. And and that's an easy thing to look at the rest of the industry as saying, you know, kind of across the board, there's numerous examples of that happening. But I also think that part of the issue in terms of that hype cycle was just like sheer optimism um, and the ability for this to actually have an excitement and sort of, I guess, making people not see the real challenges. Based on your experience, what else contributed to that hype cycle? And was it inevitable? Like, was it unavoidable for 
the industry as nascent as it is to have gone through this cycle? So I'm I'm not sure it was unavoidable, but at least I think it's it's actually fairly common. Uh, so the way technology development often happens is that you have a very long phase where you experiment around, try to figure out what the solutions are, the right approaches are. And then you have that revolutionary invention that all of a sudden accelerates the progress. For autonomous driving, that was actually the advances in machine learning, deep learning specifically, uh, around 2012, 2013, 2014. Those were then translated and incorporated into autonomous vehicles. And all of a sudden, we as, as a research community made tremendous progress. We could all of a sudden um, not just see objects and lanes, but we could really, uh, down to every pixel in a camera image, classify whether that image belongs to a car or a truck or to a road or to a sidewalk, to a pedestrian. We could uh, separate um, persons next to a bicycle from persons on a bicycle, which obviously one walks, the other one drives. So it's a completely different um, motion pattern that all of a sudden enabled the interpretation of uh, traffic scenes to a much greater detail. And that then led to it's typically an S-curve where you have a very flat segment in the beginning. Then all of a sudden you have a very steep increase. And then a lot of attention is focused on that technology field. But the people that don't have a 20-year history, they only see the one, two years in which we've made tremendous progress. And then they... I mean, you know, the humans are simple. They extrapolate, uh, extrapolate that uh, two-year progress into the future. And sure, then you come to the incorrect assumptions that we are all done in, in another three years. And then you get to those five years um, um, prognosis, which, which are simply wrong. Because at the end, um, you then, in, in 20% of the time, you reach 80% of the solution. But then the remaining 10, 20%, they take another, again, another 10, 20 uh, years and that's exactly where we are and we are still making progress in fact um just end of last year end of 2022 uh, cruise and waymo have announced that they significantly extended their operational ranges where they are operating um that shows a lot of progress in robustness to an expert but it's obviously not as visible to to a non-expert what that actually means in terms of technical progress so, yes, we are making progress, but the end is always hard. So, throughout this entire period, <clears throat> you were also teaching at Stanford. Is that correct? Yeah, I started teaching in 2010. So, I, I moved to the Bay Area in 2006, uh, started to work at Stanford early 2007 during the DARPA Urban Challenge development phase. And then I noticed at Stanford why there's a lot of groundbreaking uh, research happening. Um, what is What is missing is uh the background what already exists and what are what are the hard product uh, the hard problems to solve with respect to commercialization again at stanford we were working on that uh on that uh creating that groundbreaking revolution that moves the whole field forward but there was no awareness what's already on the market and what the what it takes to then overcome the remaining 20% in terms of creating that robustness. So I started the class um, um, in 2010 
and it just started again um, two days ago uh, in the winter quarter. So this is now the 13th year I've been teaching that class at Stanford. At the risk of, uh, I, ha- I hate it when people are like, summarize your book in a tweet, right? <laughs> At the risk of asking you to do the same and summarize a class that clearly, if, if you could just, you know, give a few sentences, uh, you would do that instead of teaching a whole class. But uh, I have to ask for for listeners, uh, just at a very high level, you know, I, I think you know, there's awareness around, you know, sometimes it's about sort of limiting the task, right? That's how you get to robustness. And most is about increasing the hardware, perception hardware, computer, whatever. I sort of, I assume all of those things are factors, but, but sort of what, how, how can you summarize sort of uh, uh, some of the, the, the ways that you teach AV developers to, to overcome what is very clearly like the, the, the hardest part of, of this task? Yeah, so the, the class is actually simple to summarize. I'm trying to get across the big picture. The big picture consists of also non-technical aspects, so technology, taxonomy, terminology, current uh, policies and regulations, both in, in, in US, but also internationally. Um, then I'm teaching the state of the art. So what does already exist that goes back to sensor technology, actuator technology, and current driver assistance technology uh, that is already deployed in vehicles. Then I talk about the challenges that pertain both to the technology being used, but also the limitations of the technology being used and um, how that then affects um, public perception, including, it's going to be a topic this year, some companies over-promising and under-delivering with respect to uh, both technology and, and and taxonomy, so as as Ed, I'm, I know you're well aware, uh, some of the companies uh, may be misusing terminology a little bit there. Uh, but then I also talk about uh, technology that is being used specifically uh, for level four systems, so for um, essentially driverless technology, truly driverless technology. How has your student population the people who are in your class changed over the last 13 years like are they coming better prepared than before just how are they different from when you first started it actually the course started as a fairly technical course going fairly deep into driver assistance technology and again that was 13 years ago right after the dapper um uh granted urban challenge then around 2013 14 when this topic started to become more popular, I saw an increase in non-engineering students. So the course is, list, is, is listed um, in mechanical engineering, cross-listed, I believe, in computer science. So originally there were a lot of engineers. And then I saw um, uh, the number of MBAs, so from the G- Stanford GSB, increase significantly. So I uh, expanded the cu- curriculum to... Um, to the business case, for instance, then I saw communication students join. So they, at the time, Cliff Ness was still around. Uh, Cliff Ness doing research in uh, human-machine interaction, user experience. How do we, uh, persons, humans, both in the vehicle but also outside of the vehicle, uh, interact with both driver assistance technology and driverless vehicles? So I started to add uh, HMI topics. Um, to the class, and um, then uh, around 2014, the whole legal topic came up. 
Um, so I have the deputy director of the California DMV come in every year talking about the California regulatory process. Uh, then I added, um, added content around uh, federal, both U.S. federal and then international legislation. So over the over the years, it's become a really holistic course trying to address the whole topic of vehicle automation, uh, really top down coming from the big picture. Is it, is that evolution, is that, is there something to learn about sort of the bubble from, from that evolution in that I, I sometimes get the sense as someone who very non-technical background, right? Much more focused on sort of all these non-technical uh, technical topics that, that you're discussing. It, it feels like sometimes, and obviously like lots of different individuals have gotten into this and, and, and for lots of, I think, different reasons and different mixtures of, of reasons uh, at times. But a lot of times I feel like sometimes the best intention people who got over their skis on this stuff were so focused on the technology that they lost sight of some of this bigger stuff. And, and sometimes even I think when you talk about the language, it's remarkable how easy it can be to lose sight of what the actual goal is simply by using the wrong words about things like that. Do you, I mean, is, is that what this evolution reflects is, is a growing understanding that this is not just a technical problem that if you want to build a business in this space, you have to sort of pull your head up from, from again, really complicated, hard, amazing technical challenges that people are overcoming and putting them into a broader context. Mm -hmm. uh, at least I hope so. I spend um, half a class every year um, just on the taxonomy and the terminology. And as an example, I also give uh, show uh, uh, press examples, so articles um, that have been published that use clearly incorrect technology or contribute to the overpromising um, that is out there. So, for instance, an article claiming uh, that we we already have self-driving cars and um, that we have completely automatic emergency braking, which can prevent accidents and so on and so on. And then I give those articles out to students and then I let them find the mistakes. Um, and then um, we also look at videos uh, of uh, certain vehicles that you find many of them on, on YouTube, obviously, that then crash with driver assistance technology um, being deployed where there was clearly a, you know, it goes both ways. There's, there's under trust that develops in drivers and, but there's also a lot of over trust. And more recently, we've seen a lot of examples of that over trust developing. So the students should actually see and they do see, um, in, in that it can go in both directions. So yes, I hope that 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 creates. Do you have a, a journalist that you think is the is the best at pointing out these things? Uh, is there someone? <laughs> uh, <laughs> obviously, we no, we have them here on the on the show. Uh, no, no, seriously. So, um, uh, 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 Alex, as you know, I am actually one of the original authors of the SAE levels, but we also cover the SAE levels, and I actually do use. Uh, your criticism of the ESAE levels in class also extensively that um, while the SAE levels are, are now the predominantly used taxonomy worldwide, actually, um, there, there are still a lot of limitations uh, and they're clearly not, while I don't have a better idea, they're clearly not the best idea we could have well, come up with. Recently. Um, so that is also being discussed. Oh, so please yeah? go on, finish your thought. No, I, I just wanted to finish with... Um, while it is being used uh, predominantly, it's actually the historically there were three 
but the SAE list, uh, systems, uh, system is now the one that is being used all, all around the world. Um, it is also misused in a number of ways that, that I and we actually didn't foresee around 2014 when we drafted the first version. So uh, it, in recently there's been, um, you know, uh, Philip Koopman came out with a proposal for different definitions. And then last week, and Manchashu of Mobileye at CES uh, endorsed, you know, I mean, I'm not, I don't want to place blame, but among the people who were using, inventing terms like level two plus 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 and level three minus plus, um, you know, Mobileye was one of those companies. And last week he came out and said, we're not going to do that anymore. We're going to go with eyes on, hands on, eyes on, hands off, eyes off, hands off, RoboTaxi. Do you have a point of view on that, on moving to shifting to that? Uh, you know, uh, taxonomy or uh, Koopman suggestions, or are you still waiting for something profoundly different and better? Um, I, I really like the the uh, eyes on, hands off uh, terminology. I, I do. I'm afraid, though, that it's not simple enough um, to to actually be successful to be to be used consistently. I think what really contributed um to the to the adoption of the SAE labels is that they are simple in the sense you can just call it L4. Uh not saying that it in hindsight it was it was a good decision to make it that simple, but I think that contributed significantly to the widespread adoption. Hands off uh, hands hands on eyes off or the other around is simply longer, so I'm not sure if 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 it will actually find adoption, but yes, it's it's very precise, it's consistent, and it describes exactly what the responsibilities are. Some of what the issue is, which I don't have a solution for, is that there isn't. It, it's it's really just describing what the function is. It's not saying how well that particular system in that particular make and model functions, and there seems to be in the public sphere a lot of confusion about that. So. Um, all level four um, systems aren't necessarily created equally, same as level two, and also this leaning into these level two plus plus and everything. Um, is there, is this just a lack of education or do we also need like a separate rating? I know that there are agencies out there that are starting to like consumer reports that are starting to rate um, advanced driver assistance systems, or is that getting ahead of it a little bit? And that really we just need to like figure out the functional terminology first before we start getting into how to properly assess them? Um, I, I don't think there's a lack of norms and standards that pertain to robust and, uh, robustness and assessment. Um, I've actually published a blog article about two years ago, which I updated just recently, that lists all the international standards. Um, you can find it on our website, apexci slash blog. Um, so we have ISO 26262 for system-wide um, um, safety of all automotive systems, including uh, software and hardware. And that norm, for instance, clearly describes um, safety targets. And that's where the uh, 10 to the 9th, for instance, comes from. Essentially, what it means is that the norm for the highest safety rating, which is ACLD, Automotive Safety Integrity Level D, prescribes that there shouldn't be more than 10 safety critical failures of a system or component in 10 to the ninth hours of operations, which is a lot of hours and very few failures. So essentially, it means practically never 
But since you know technical system is absolutely perfect, you cannot go get get to zero, but then you get to a very, very, very tiny number. And that's not more than 10 and 10 to the worth of operation. So the that as a safety target already exists. And then essentially what the norm describes are um approaches and best practices how to how to achieve that. Because the number is so small that um for instance through road testing, you simply cannot show that you've met the number. So you need to do that indirectly uh, by following guidelines, guidance, and best practices. And unfortunately, not all industry players do that consistently. But again, the issue is is um, that the in order to get to a safe system, the number is so small that there's it's it's actually not possible to to show just through driving or through a safety assessment that um, that you've reached the safety goal. So you need to do it indirectly by following the guidelines. And you know, mentioned Phil Koopman earlier. He developed then a um, together with EdgeKids Research, uh, an additional norm specifically um, targeting driverless, so level four systems, um, both for automotive and non-automotive systems. So that's UL4600. Um, so I've been in a lot of discussions between you know journalism and commentary and PAVE and, and other things about sort of the, the levels and, and possible alternatives, I think impossible alternatives to the ones that people want um, and all the challenges in, 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 you know, and, and I actually, you know, there's a lot of criticism to the levels, but, but, you know, if they were a much better way to do it, there's a lot of people trying to come up with them and, and it's not a simple thing. I, I feel like a lot of the confusion though, does come from not so much the definitions of the, of, of, of driving automation, but the use case. So in other words, I think the, 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 the word car, has gotten confused a lot of people because car is a, a very multi-purpose device, right? We use it for all of our forms of mobility, whereas automation, generally speaking, you automate individual tasks rather than all of the tasks, right? Um, and so I'm wondering, you know, is that something that that you think is a factor here that maybe, you know, sort of separating the automotive and car use cases from situations, you know, where really you're riding in a robot or maybe goods are being right, like a delivery robot or a semi truck or a, or a robo taxi. I mean, these are not really cars in the same way that a Tesla with autopilot is a, is a car. Um, is that, do you think that that could be part of, of the way forward as well, that that needs to all be separated? Yeah. I, I think so. And that was also one of the, um, the lessons learned for me coming back from CS this year, uh, which is, and I wrote that in, in, in a post also. I think autom it is clearly shown to me all, all autonomy, uh, vehicle automation isn't dead. But now as a community, we've understood that we need to find the targeted use cases where it actually makes sense. And that's not necessarily uh, privately owned vehicles. Those are uh, trucking, last mile delivery, uh, shuttles uh, on dedicated routes. We can, for instance, what May Mobility, our friends at May Mobility are doing to run um, smaller shuttles to replace uh, large diesel buses on fixed routes. And then you can do that either on demand or at least much more often. Um, it's factory automation, port automation, uh, hazardous environments. There are a lot of applications where vehicle automation and driverless, uh, completely driverless vehicles make sense. And I think passenger cars. Uh, running those completely driverless is not necessarily the best and most importantly, not the, not the first application. Jan, uh, what is the, 
future of Apex AI look like? You just announced a um, uh, a new product or uh, around Apex OS has been rebranded. What's the next thing that you're going to do? Yeah, so uh, over the first three years of the company, we uh, essentially rewrote ROS and then um, launched that as Apex OS. Uh, then we certified it in year three and launched this Apex OS cert. Then what we learned over the next year deploying it into POCs, into proof of concept projects, was that ROS is great for um, helping the developer to develop applications quickly. But what's missing in ROS uh, is what then manufacturers of technology, so trucking companies, uh, vehicle OEMs, driver assistance manufacturers, what those companies need to then deploy those applications into vehicle. So this is connecting into the vehicle, um, hardware abstraction, uh, diagnostics, health monitoring, the whole tooling around CI, CD uh, to develop uh, the larger software system. So over the past two years, we have uh, developed those. Then, as you pointed out, this year we, we rebranded our product. So we, we seen that uh, Apex OS, um, as a term, the, you know, the term we were actually ahead of the field two, for two, three years. Uh, now everybody's calling their system vehicle OS, but it's actually not an OS. It's an abstraction layer. It's a software development framework. So we didn't want to contribute uh, uh, further to that misconception of having an OS for a vehicle, which is not an, an OS in the true sense. So we rebranded to Apex Grace and Apex IDA. Apex IDA is our communication product, um, recognizing um, important female scientists. So that's the, that's the new uh, naming concept here. And you ask what's up for us in the next two years. So we are now moving um, into vehicle production, meaning we are working with customers on actually deploying Apex Grace and Apex IDA into production projects and then into commercial vehicles. Uh, my last question, then we should wrap this up. What do you drive? <laughs> or what do you trust that has a steering wheel and pedals? So uh, to work, I drive a bicycle. Um Occasionally on the weekend, I drive a 97 uh, Porsche S, which is the last uh, of the air-cooled. Um, really cool car. Unfortunately, I don't get it. I get to drive it often. The connoisseur's choice. When I have time, I'm currently almost done restoring with my children a 69 Chevy C10 pickup truck, which is completely softwareless. Um, so I'm waiting... Um, I'm waiting for the first vehicle with Apex Race to come out, and then I'll buy. buy well, we could have done a whole episode uh, so just about drive. those choices, and that's going to be <laughs> a, on the weekend bonus edition. All right. <laughs> a, a bicycle, a naturally aspirated sports car, and a pickup truck. I mean, this is what, what yeah. more? What more do you want in a, in a mobility quiver? I, I approve. <laughs> we all approve. Um, Jan, thank you so much for joining us today. And thank you to our audience for listening to another episode of the Atonicast. Thanks, guys, for having me on the show. That was excellent. Thank you so much, Jan. Yeah, thank you. Really appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, I, I enjoyed it. Yeah, yeah, it's great. Yeah. Um, how uh, are we with it doesn't, It it doesn't want to stop recording. It, it literally, I'm, I'm hitting stop and it won't stop.